The comments within the following podcast are those of any show hosts and not representative of any company in which the show hosts may represent. Welcome to Podcast 273. My name is Jared Reimer. I hope you that you will enjoy the podcast as much as I have bringing it together. I'd like to thank Armando for a segment on this podcast. We have a bonus black hat talk that I found through an article that I posted on the technology blog. This one is dealing with Jack Potting ATMs, otherwise known as automated teller machines. I also comment on the video and talk briefly about the Zone BDS closing as of February 2018. And finally, Android versus iOS. We're going to have more. I introduced the segment and Armando and I talk a little bit about why we chose our specific phone choice and bring up a little bit about the security perspective. And finally, contact information is at the end of the program. I hope that you will enjoy the program as much as I have putting it together for you. Please feel free also to check out our new Talking Tech and Security program. We've posted four episodes and show notes are available on the blog and a link to its RSS is also available and you're welcome to comment on it. Thank you so much for listening to this program and we'll be back with another podcast real soon. Thanks for listening. All right. All right, so we finally made it. Uh, I want to give a big thanks to my mate Alex, who uh, flew over from Europe. He road tripped the ATMs with me in an Escalade from San Jose to here. Um, the whole time I'm thinking, please don't get pulled over, please don't get pulled over. <laughs> Two ATMs in the back of an Escalade and about 6,000 notes of novelty currency. What are you boys up to, mate? But we made it, we got them to the casino, so we're all good. Um, the attraction to target ATMs is fairly obvious. I mean, they're full of cash. But for myself, it's kind of part of a bigger picture and a bigger plan. And that's to uh, explore systems that, when compromised, have direct and immediate consequences. You know, society relies on various proprietary systems, whether they be ATM machines, medical devices, smart meters, parking meters, or uh, the computer system in a vehicle. It's important to research these systems, particularly they're often not designed with a secure methodology. Uh, as a result of that research, we can use that knowledge to design better and safer products in the future. 
So my goal, uh, the goal of the talk is to spark discussion on the best ways to remediate and prevent the attacks that I'm going to be demonstrating. The goal definitely isn't to give a cookbook recipe on how to hack ATMs. You know, uh, I find the process of finding vulnerabilities a little bit more interesting anyway. The journey, not the destination. Although the destination is pretty cool in this, uh, in this one. And I hope to change the way people look at devices that from the outside um, are seemingly impenetrable. So current attacks are the skimmer, which is certainly a fan favorite, uh, small overlay that slides over the card slot and the pin pads, manufactured to blend seamlessly with whatever particular ATM it's manufactured for, designed to both capture the track data on the cards as well as the pin numbers. And you know, technology in some of these is no joke. Data that gets transmitted over GPS, some even have tamper protection. They wipe themselves when find out and send the remaining data back to the attacker. Uh, physical theft and RAM raids, you may have all seen those uh, YouTube videos where a couple of good old boys hurl through the front window of a store, attach the chain to an ATM and the other end to their pickup truck and take off with it. Uh, not the most subtle of attacks, but um, that's ninja status compared to some of the other ones. And we have card trapping and card snooping. Card trapping where uh, someone will insert a small shim, commonly known as the Lebanese loop, into a slot, traps the cards, and they're designed in such a way that when the card's read, it'll be read but won't be returned to you. Often combined with shoulder surfing to get your pin, or they'll get your pin in uh, ways that may not be quite as friendly. And then safeguarding the frontal attacks, basically going at the ATM with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch. Um, explosives, which is surprisingly popular, which I find a bit odd. Uh, the attack is literally tying a bunch of explosives to an ATM and blowing the crap out of it. Now you'd think blowing up an ATM would be somewhat counterproductive, but uh, this is big in Australia, so go figure. Sorry, Australians. And, <laughs> and data breaches, uh, hacking the back end, so hacking the bank processor, harvesting the card data. An example of this would have been the uh, compromise of the Royal Bank of Scotland will pay back end. Certainly the safest and was the most technically sophisticated attack that I've seen. I think about nine million was stolen during that attack. And then I guess we have miscellaneous. Uh, other. So there would have been the default passcode attack from a couple of years back, uh, where if the operator password was left unchanged on the machines, you could reprogram the ATM to think there was a uh, lower denomination in the machine than there actually was. So you know you could program think it's full of $5 notes when it's really full of 20s. And I'll be adding some more to the other category, practical attacks, which in my opinion um, blow John Connor's one right out of order. So I've picked standalone ATMs, and there's a few, reason, a few reasons for that. First off, they're pretty easy to get a hold of. You know, you jump online, and like anything on the internet, you just add to cart. Um, getting the ATMs delivered to your house, though, is actually quite interesting. Um, I had the ATM delivery guy literally wheel in one of the ATMs, and he came in, he's like, what on earth do you need an ATM in your house for? And <laughs> And I, I was feeling a little bit cheeky at the time, so I just looked at them like, oh, I don't like the transaction fees, mate. <laughs> and he just kind of shook his head and went on his way. Um, but also, they're everywhere. You know, every bar, convenience store, market, and they're often in secluded areas. You know, they'll be out by the restroom, tucked away in corners. Um, but I will be discussing attack methods for both standalones and hole-in-the-wall ATMs. I'll go over walk-up style attacks, but then I'll shift focus to a far more important vector, and that's the remote attacks. And particularly what an attacker can leverage through a successful remote compromise. 
And when I say remote, I mean remote default, because that's the only way to roll, really. Um, so just to get an idea of how popular these ATMs are, this is just uh, one block on my street from a bit of a pub crawl. Um, I must say my favorite is the guy who owns a Mexican restaurant here holding his bottle of Tapatio over the top of the ATM. It doesn't exactly look chuffed to be there, though, but, you know. So this is standard specs of a new model retail-style ATM, generally Windows CE running an ARM processor. Our new models support both TCP IP and dial-up by default, optional wireless. When I say wireless, I mean uh, CDMA, not 802.11, because so no drive-by ATM attacks, unfortunately. Thought it would be kind of cool to ride by and just have ATM spit out cash. Although maybe the Grug could possibly do something with this. Um, SSL support and a triple desk encrypted pin pad. So the pin pad performs all the encryption within the device itself, has anti-tampering me mechanisms, and I may talk a bit more about that beast a little later. Uh, so this is a typical ATM internals, uh, a bit hard to see, but there's a receipt printer over to the right, a card reader, and there's a serial interface that leads down to the safe, which is wired to the dispenser. And there's various motherboard inputs, multiple USB, SD cards, uh, the network connection, and some debugging ports. Um, on this one, there's actually a cover in there that's protecting the circuit board. I simply just removed it for photo purposes, but I guarantee both of these ATMs are completely untouched and completely unmodified. Now, funnily, funnily enough, all the ways that an ATM talk could possibly be disrupted it was actually almost with my cat, who took it down for me. Um, I had a USB keyboard plugged in, and he was chasing a moth or something. And he ripped out the USB port and then pulled out the processor plug-in at the same time. But luckily, the only damage was the USB plug that was easily soldered back in. But anyway, bad kitty. Um, so in my, in my opinion, a presentation shouldn't really be a full-blown technical tutorial. So I'll be following up later <laughs> with a white paper that goes into more technical details. But rather than digging deep into the ins and outs of C internals, I thought I'd sum up the security hurdles I faced with this quote. We were concerned about protection, but not about security. We weren't trying to design an airtight system like Windows NT. <laughs> And this was from Thomas Fenwick, who was the creator of the Windows CE kernel. And this quote came from a book called Inside Windows CE, which is uh, interviews with the core developers of CE. And it's an interesting read on the design approach that was taken, but um, essentially there were not many roadblocks. There'll be uh, the technical information, I think, lends itself better to a white paper, which I'll be following up with. So before we can even think, think about giving um, that dude from Terminator 2 a run for his money and actually start devising attacks, the first step is to be able to interface with the ATM and gain access to the file system. Because so once we have access to the file system, we can then pull the executables and be able to do some reverse engineering. Now, unfortunately, when the ATM boots, it boots directly to its own proprietary application. So there's no Explorer shell. And we need a shell to be able to make things easier. Originally, I suppose naively, I thought I could just plug in a keyboard and Alt-Tab, but of course that wasn't to be the case. But to get a shell, we'll need to have Explorer execute at boot time. Um, so the CE application boot sequence is fairly straightforward. The kernel nkexe runs filesys.exe, filesys sets up the registry and file system, and then it executes the applications that are listed in the registry key hklm init. So the trick is to patch the application we want executed into that boot list. Uh, so of course we want to get Explorer into the boot list, and there's two approaches basically. Uh, the first approach assumes you have a copy of the CE ROM image, 
Uh, the registry file can then be extracted, modified, recompiled into the image. This requires a way to rewrite the flash, whether it be serial, ethernet, JTAG, or what have you. And the other approach is do patch in Explorer while you're debugging. And this, of course, requires some sort of debugging capability, JTAG, ethernet, serial, et cetera. So I decided to go with JTAG because it's a fairly straightforward way to accomplish our goals. Um, JTAG is a hardware debugging interface which essentially gives you unrestricted debugging access to the processor core. Now the hardware to do this used to be pretty pricey, um, but these days with OpenOCD and some of the open source projects, you get the needed hardware for less than 100 bucks. Now with JTAG access, you can remotely debug with GDB, debug the kernel, the bootloader, and so on. Now, JTAG has been talked about to death, and I won't dwell on it. There's a lot of resources online with a lot more information. So here's just the hardware debugger connected to the motherboard. Now, it's probably obvious, but the use of hardware debuggers and things of that nature have absolutely nothing to do with the ATM attacks that I'll be demonstrating. They're simply used uh, to initially gain access so we can then go on to find real vulnerabilities. But... Um, Speaking of JTAG, I actually learned a valuable lesson when I was messing with one of the ATMs. I had the JTAG hooked up and I was screwing around and I accidentally wiped out a massive chunk of the firmware and overwrote all the um, ATM files on it. Now at the time I couldn't get a hold of the software to reflash it because I wasn't an ATM distributor. So I actually had to call a licensed uh, ATM technician to come around to my house. <laughs> Now, three guys arrive, and of course they ask again, you know, why are these ATMs in your house? And I say, oh, I haven't moved them into my store yet, and all this type of thing. Um, but anyway, see, so what happened? How, how did you remove all this? I said, oh, I had it on a card. I was trying to change a splash screen, and it all just wiped out. He's like, yeah, no, they'll do that. They'll do that. And he, uh, you know, and he, so he starts going to work on the ATM, and I'm like, firmware, what is that, mate? You know, acting completely stupid. Um, he ends up teaching me a hell of a lot about hacking ATMs. I got his business card, we kept in touch. Unfortunately, after this presentation, that relationship may be severed. <laughs> oh, yeah, so the lesson is always back up the firmware first. So now that we can debug, we need a way to inject. Um, with the debugger connected, simply set a breakpoint on create process. Um, and that, the offset was found by simply dumping, dumping the memory from the ATM and just doing a byte compare to an offline version of Core DLL. Now, when working with the ARM processor, uh, the parameters when they're passed to the function are passed in registers before they utilize the stack. So R0 will have the first parameter, which is the executable, what you want to execute. We simply replace that string with, with what would normally be the ATM executable uh, and override of explorer.exe. Now, if explorer doesn't exist on the image, um, then you can just put a copy of Explorer on a removable drive and pass that full path to, to create process. And so then you get a shell on the ATM. Um, when I first was playing around with the ATMs, I was quite excited just to have a little shell on them, so I had them playing movies and whatnot. But <laughs> not really surprising, the ATMs are pretty crap for playing movies. <laughs> Slow frame rate and the six-inch screen, so it will not be replacing the flat screen. So now with Explorer, we can uh, plug in a USB drive and a keyboard and copy off the files for reverse engineering. Then we can modify the registry so Explorer will always boot. Now, remote debugging with JTAG over GDB is not the ideal way to debug a Windows machine. So the next step is to set up a better debugging environment. And there's a way to debug Windows CE applications without having ActiveSync installed. And that's to debug with Visual Studio over Ethernet. 
So you simply build an empty project, overwrite the local executable with the executable from the device that you want to debug, set, it to, to set the correct TCP settings, copy the file over, run it under the debugger, and you have application debugging with Visual Studio. So now, finally, we have everything in place to be able to reverse engineer the software to locate vulnerabilities, but to also test any software that we create for the ATM. So planning an attack. Uh, there's a fairly limited attack surface, really. We have the card reader. But assuming we have an overflow or some other string-based attack via the card tracks, uh, there's a limited amount of characters and a very restricted character set. So I'm not going to say it's not possible, but I will say it would be unlikely to be practical or reliable. Uh, the keypad, another long shot, but maybe there's possible master passwords or backdoors left in by the developers. Then the network, so any open ports, an answering phone line, any options for a remote attack. And we also have the various inputs on the motherboard itself, but of course this requires access to the motherboard. Um, so of course progress is never really made without a few failures along the way. And in my attempt to come up with a Terminator 2-esque hack, I made this little device. It's basically an electromagnet wired up to an amp, which is connected to a media player. And you create a web file, which is created to simulate the data on a magnetic stripe. Um, the electromagnet plug into the ATM, flick the switch, play the web file, and uh, the ATM will think of magnetic stripes being read. Technically, it works fine, but it was actually bugger all help. So the goal, of course, is to execute code on the ATM. So I'll talk about these walk-up attacks first. Now, the cash dispenser is housed at the very least by a safe. If you take the cheapest option, if you spend a bit more, you can get even more heavy-duty protection. The motherboard, on the other hand, is protected by a one-key-fits-all lock. <laughs> and this is, this is actually standard practice across the board. And these keys, like almost everything else on the internet, are easily available to add to cart. And uh, funnily enough, there used to be Diebold keys last year when I was looking, um, but they've since vanished. But I'm sure with a little creativity, they could be found. But as you can see, most manufacturers uh, take this approach. So the walk-up attack. So now with your master key, you have access to the USB slots and what other inputs. So you can pop open the motherboard compartment, insert a USB key in a couple of seconds, a lot faster than installing a skimmer, right? Now, even though the attack time here is short, there's still the possibility of being detected. But you know, I suppose that's a great thing about these retail and standalone type ATMs. You know, they're out by the restrooms, they're out of sight, off by the Siggy machine or something. And I suppose then there's that also psychological aspect of using an ATM machine. It's kind of considered rude to look over someone's shoulder. And uh, unless, of course, you're a criminal, and then he would probably learn a trick or two anyway. Now, all ATMs need a way to upgrade their firmware. And this is most often leveraged via the removable drives. So the ATM application checks the drive for a valid upgrade, the valid firmware is found, upgrade, and store whatever we decide to add in there. Now, of course, the firmware is typically a proprietary format. Um, there are checksums, encryption, and the algorithms are easily figured out by reversing the code on the ATM side. So once you can create your own firmware package that adheres to the correct format, well, then you can upgrade. But upgrade with a few modifications, of course. Now, the most important attack is the remote attack. Now, most if not all ATMs that run on a Windows-based OS support some form of remote monitoring or remote configuration. So this allows you to log into your ATM remotely, review or change the settings, get stats, change the splash screens, and so on. Another quite useful feature is the ability to up remotely upgrade the software. 
Now, this is sometimes a feature, but always something you can leverage if you have a vulnerability. Now, obviously, authentication is required to be able to do anything useful. Uh, with the particular model I'll be demonstrating, both a serial number and a remote password are required, and they're both made up of a combination of numbers and letters, and a five-second delay is forced after each connection attempt. So a brute force is basically out of the question. So we require a vulnerability within the authentication process, and it just so happens. So let me introduce Dillinger. Dillinger is my remote ATM attack or administration tool, whatever way you want to look at it. Dillinger named after the bank robber, of course. Um, so we've, to we've talked about loading code on a local ATM machine with a master key and a flash drive in the correctly formed firmware, you're basically set. But the obvious drawback here is you have to interact with the machine itself. So the ultimate win would be able to execute code or load code remotely, and that's where Dillinger comes in. Um, so Dillinger takes advantage of a fairly severe vulnerability in the ATM management capability. And interestingly, although most operators don't use the remote monitoring, it's enabled by default on this particular manufacturer, so cha-ching. Now, typically to log into the machine remotely, we require yeah, the knowledge of the serial number and the password, but due to an awesome vulnerability, I can bypass all authentication on the device. And the remote attack is 100% reliable. So Dillinger supports TCP IP and it supports dial-up as well. And I heard through a fairly knowledgeable source that most of these stand-ups, uh, standalones, about approximately 95% of them are still on a dial-up connection. Now, of course, back in the day, finding an ATM over the phone line would be a long process of nights and nights of war dialing. But you know, thanks to tools like HDMore's Warvox, you can map out modems on exchange in a matter of hours. Then write a custom tool to find the ATM responses, and you're away. So Dillinger features. So Dillinger will allow you to manage an unlimited amount of ATMs through its interface. Uh, you can add a group, so you add a city. Under the city, you add each individual ATM, either its IP address or its phone number. Now, the heart of the tool, of course, is the authentication bypass that it exploits. And this is the stepping stone to be able to do anything useful. So one feature in Dillinger is to be able to test the bypass in a way which confirms the vulnerability, but doesn't actually modify the remote ATM in any way or leave any trace. So the obvious problem with finding a remote ATM is that you have no idea of the location. So Dillinger can pull the ATM settings from the device, which includes all the master passwords, but it also includes the receipt data. And you know when you use an ATM at the bottom of the receipt, always has the location or the name of the business. Um, so even if it doesn't have the exact, yeah, it doesn't have the exact location, it'll have the name of the business. And of course, the best feature is to upload my rootkit. Again, bypasses all authentication, initializes software uploads, um, the rootkit, and then basically lets me uh, overwrite the entire firmware of the device. So in general, someone's going to need to be at the ATM if you want to get any sort of payout. So again, I uh, added a feature so it'd be possible to carry out an attack without ever visiting the ATM at all. So when someone inserts a card, the track data is captured and saved, and I can then retrieve that track data remotely. And finally, the remote jackpot, which kind of speaks for itself. So Scrooge is the ATM rootkit, um, developed specifically for ATMs running on Windows CE. Scrooge implements the typical rootkit technology you'd expect, hides itself and its friends by various CE system hooks, uh, hides itself from the process list, hides itself from the file system by hooking syscalls and filtering the results. And there's a hidden pop-up menu which can be activated by both a special key sequence on the ATM or by inserting a card with custom track data. 
Now, it'll run on any ARM or Xscale-based ATM, Intel with a few tweaks. Originally, I was designing it for both Intel and ARM, but it turns out that CE on x86 is actually pretty rare and basically non-existent in the ATM world. So the code for interfacing with the ATMs has to be customized for the different ATMs, as they all use different peripherals and kind of non-standard ways of communicating. So Scrooge's hidden menu. Uh, I just use a standard set windows hook filter to capture the side buttons on the ATM. Um, although set windows hook is actually undocumented in CE, it still exists and it works as expected. So a combination of keys will trigger the hidden menu and it's varied enough not to be launched by accident, but maybe if there's a kid playing around with the ATM, he may end up scoring big, who knows. Um, and the card reader is hooked by an inline detour style patch. So this is where you essentially patch a branch instruction into a piece of code you'd like to intercept. The branch jumps to your code, your code executes, then returns the original function. Now with the hook in place, there's a check on the read buffer for track data that matches gimme the loop. And if it matches, the menu is brought up in that way as well. So the menu functions are fairly standard for what you'd expect. You can dispense from each cassette, print out stats, which include the remaining bill count, and you can exit. Um, so yeah, to add my own functionality, I've added a few inline patches. Uh, essentially, you can patch a small assembler stub into the functions you want to hook. The stub then calls a function in external DLL, overwrites any overwritten instructions, and then continues as normal. Now, this could be done by dynamically, but the fact that the ATM vulnerabilities allow me to replace the executables entirely, we can make these patches permanent, which is actually far more reliable. And it's also a lot easier on ARM as every instruction is 32 bits long as well. So I place hooks at the card reader, the pin pad, and the parser that ho um, handles remote configuration commands. So with those hooks, I can now add my own handy features. So I can save the track data, capture the pin pad, have a few custom remote commands. So pull the track data, sure. Remote jackpot, might as well. All right. So there's going to be quite a lot of demos. So I went through that a bit quick, because uh, I think there's probably a good 25 or so minutes of demos. So I may as well put my money where my mouth is, or the ATM's money where its mouth is, I guess. Okay, so this is uh, Dillinger's interface. We can add a group, so we'll say Black Hat. Add an ATM, Barnaby's ATM. Location uh, on stage at Black Hat. <laughs> And Dillinger supports uh, both dial-up and TCP IP. So uh, in this case, I'm using TCP IP, of course. By the way, um, just to re reiterate, this is by default. Um, remote functionality is enabled on all of these ATMs as they ship out. This one here, at least, not the other one. OK. So now I can right-click on my ATM. I can then test the bypass, upload the rootkit, uh, reset to default, get the track settings, get ATM settings, etc. So uh, let's see. I'm trying to think if we should switch to the ATM. You know, not, not just yet. Yeah, OK. So I can test the bypass. 
connects to the ATM, testing ATM authentication bypass success, and it disconnects. Now, we'll actually blow up the ATMs in a sec, but all that shows on the uh, ATMs is just RMS process. I have to wait till that goes away. So it's nothing too noticeable, you know, if, you're a, if you see this ATM. Actually, if someone close to the thing could let me know when it's... Uh, it's gone? Okay. So now, um, the most important feature, of course, is to upload the rootkit. So we'll upload Scrooge, the final version. Connects, sends a bypass successful, initiates upload, and it's uploading it to the ATM now. This is bypassing all authentication in the ATM and by default. Now, even though it's over the network, it takes a little while because they have their own proprietary protocol, uh, which acknowledges each packet and then has a small delay and so on. Um, proprietary protocol, of course, has its own proprietary encryption, and you all know what happens when people implement proprietary encryption. It's, fa it's fairly easy to make your own. Okay, so when it finishes uploading, the ATM should reboot. And if we could uh, flick to the ATM now on the screen. All right. Takes a little while, Windows CE, you know, it's not the, not the fastest beast out there. Yeah, if we could just pan out just a bit too. If we could get the screen and the dispenser. Yeah, that's cool. What's that? Oh, they'll be spitting money, mate. Don't worry about that. <laughs> okay. Let me make sure I have my little card here. So as I said, there's two ways um, to, to get the remote menu to, or the hidden menu to pop up. One is with a special card with the track data. So if we insert... Okay. I always say it's 100% reliable, and why doesn't it work? There we go. Okay, so that card now has popped up my hidden menu. Um, you can dispense 50 bills from A, B, C, or D, which are the four cassettes in the dispenser. You can print statistics, which give you the master passwords and so on, or you can exit. So I'll just uh, dispense 50 from the first cassette.
So these um these are million dollar bills, but it will <laughs> probably not much use at the craps table. The other the other one will spit out of it a bit of currency. Okay, so now we can exit, and I said there was a, a key sequence which you could also enter to pop up their menu. <laughs> These buttons are a bit buggered. Try that again. I've obviously pressed these buttons a fair few times. There we go. So we can exit from there too. Okay. So can we uh, cut back to the computer? Okay. And um, it'd be nice to know where this ATM actually is as well. So we can retrieve the ATM settings. Connects. Retrieves the settings and saves them to disk. Now, you can see, um, so up here are the passwords to the ATM itself. Um, I don't actually live on 123 Kiwi Street, by the way, but I do live in San Jose. And then it has the uh, phone numbers as well as the IP addresses and the receipt coupons and all that type of thing. Now, um, of course, the, one of the greatest things about this is the fact that you can retrieve track data from people who insert cards. So would anyone like to volunteer? <laughs> is Brandon here? There he is. Brandon, I think, has a custom credit card especially for this. So can we flick to the ATM again, please? Can we cross to the ATM? Okay, so just uh, insert your card as you normally would use an ATM. Could you zoom into the keyboard, please? <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you, sir. So back to the computer, please. So now, let's see if we can get the track data that he just inserted. Connects, retrieves the Stripe card data, saves it to disk. Okay, so you can actually see from um, the first one was the Gimme the Loot, where I was actually had uh, my demo card. And then the next track data, this doesn't look like a credit card, Brandon. Dr. Raid of the Buster Cardi with the card leet, 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 leet. <laughs> but of course, uh, it will capture any credit card that's entered into the machine. And finally, um, the remote jackpot, which is always handy. So go back to the ATM. Issue the jackpot command. We have a winner. <laughs> so
Now, before I, um, before, I'm not going to let the other one get off scot-free, so I will quickly demo the walk-up style attack. Now, I'm not as fast as this as I should be, but I will try it anyway. So remember, the walk-up attack is simply popping open the cabinet, inserting a USB, and restarting it. So. Right, so that's the attack done. I, don't, I wouldn't be spotted if I was out by the restroom. Um, I think just for just to make it uh, look a little better on stage, I might just open the cabinet here. Not opening the safe, of course, just the cabinet. So the other attack was somewhat practical. This one, um, you'd probably end up on World's Dumbest Criminals, as you'll probably see soon. Okay, so it boots. Right now it should be reading the firmware off that USB drive. Uh, copies of firmware over as it initializes the little black hat logo floating around the screen. Obviously, in the real world, it would be a rootkit, not a black hat logo. But so I kind of tailored this for both black hat and for Vegas, as you'll see. ARM9 processors are not the fastest. <laughs> I just want to see how long it actually takes to uh, dump its entire dispenser. It will start with million dollar bills and it's going to switch to IOActive currency which also doubles as invites for the party. So. I want there to be a big pile at the end. <laughs> It still hasn't got to the IOActive currency. I should have put that first, I guess. Okay, hold on.
There we go. <laughs> Okay, we can uh, probably flick back to the uh, presentation now. <laughs> okay, so countermeasures. <laughs> uh, the obvious physical... I may just disconnect the sound really quick. So the obvious physical countermeasure to prevent the walk-up attack is to offer upgrade options on the locks themselves. Uh, so there's a unique key for each ATM. Now, of course, if you want to take this into your own hands, uh, just drill a hole and throw a padlock on it. Um, if a trusted environment was set up that only allowed signed executables to be run, that would prevent the original attack. And although it wouldn't have pre prevented the actual attack vector of the remote attack, it would have added a barrier to uh, executing, executing rogue executables. Now, unfortunately, in Windows CE 5, implementing the trust environment isn't as straightforward as it should be. Code has to be introduced into the builds, and I think the option to implement a secure environment should be a lot easier. But what you can do right now to prevent the remote attack is to disable RMS on the device. There's a high chance that you're not actually using the, um, the features, so disable it. That can be done from the operator menu. And finally, it's time to give these devices a rehaul. Uh, there hasn't been a secure development in, in methodology in from the get-go. So there's a need to play catch-up, have the code audited, have penetration tests, and implement best practices from here on out. Um, so there's been a noticeable surge in the community of researching proprietary devices like ATMs. And the simple fact is that the companies who manufacture the devices aren't Microsoft. right? They haven't had 10 years of continual attacks against them. So their software, that, like the software that Microsoft got forced into a secure development that got them where they are today, we're talking about devices that were developed without secure principles in mind. I think it's important to dig in, research these devices, find vulnerabilities, find solutions, and ultimately ensure a more secure future. So, cheers. enjoyed the video as much as I have that was a very enlightening video and I thought that it would be a good fit for a podcast like this because you don't know what types of things 
people are up to. And when I saw this attached to an article, I thought, you know what? Let's see what this is about. And I don't know when exactly this was done, but advances in how and what people are doing are quite interesting. And speaking of what people are doing, I want to talk about a website that has been up and is on the way out. It opened its doors to the public in 2003, and its final day of login was February 18th, 2018. February 19th. No matter which day you look at it, depending on your time zone, some people are saying it's a sad time. But sites come and go every single day on the internet. Just look at the underground activity that we cover on this podcast. Do you think those sites go up and go down? They go up. They might stay up a while. And with luck, they stay up for years before they're discovered. The website I'm talking about today is not part of the underground. It's part of the regular internet and is called The Zone BBS. This site was started by JJ Meadow when he was in college to play around with code and he got Chris Nestrid and others to help him out with the project. The site has been neglected for a while. People hadn't been going on I personally quit participating, not because I wanted to, but because it was turning into a drama zone, and I personally was not interested in that, but I know people who were. I did find some people to talk to, and I was talking to them. Otherwise, I'd leave them alone. And... uh when I published my blog post on the 18th, I believe it was, I didn't know exactly what was happening. I knew they were all logged in and there was 117 people on. The most that were ever logged on at one time on that site was 199, just shy of 200 people. And in a way, I'm sad to see it go. Uh, a lot of blind people used it. It had things on there that other sites do not. The games were one aspect of the site that made it an interesting place to go. And of course, we had the football contest, which I did place first in once. And I played some of the games too. Am I going to miss it? Yes and no. But 
there was a member who was going to start a site on a free forums page and uh, I do hope it works out now when you go to the zone until the domain expires or until they shut it off you will find their last post with 46 different messages for people to check out And uh, I do know that JJ has his own company. And uh, I'm not exactly sure what Chris does. And the community leaders, I'm not too familiar with a lot of them anyway. There were quite a number of them through the years, and each set did a set of tasks for them. I'm not going to say that it's a sad time, but it is an interesting time for the blind community in regards to where they are all going to congregate. I have found my niche at Vocal, but I haven't written in several months and started writing another article, but put that on hold. And uh, I'm trying to do stuff work-wise that will have an impact so that I can start getting paid. And that's what it's about. You're not going to get paid hanging on a site like The Zone. The community leaders never got paid. Anyone who had premium membership, they were expecting to go ahead and issue refunds. And uh, that is the right thing to do business-wise. We had seen on The Zone for some months the possibility of it closing. But I didn't see anything until the 18th. And now all we have is the one message to read. Where it's a thread of 46... And I'm sure you could view the various profiles and the site's still up. But users cannot log in any longer. And that might be the sad part. You know, I was like, well, maybe I'll play a game. Maybe I'll hang out on console and see if anyone wants to talk to me and make a connection. I don't use Facebook much. I do use Twitter, but... You know, try to keep to my own. I tweet out things that I read that are of interest, but I don't post personal stuff. 
But only time will tell, folks. Only time will tell what happens next. There was a site that was up at the same time the zone was. And I went to see what was up with it. And it had interesting features. I went to go over there once. And I couldn't log in. And when I finally found somebody, they said that site got hacked. And uh, I don't remember the site, but it was another site similar to what the zone was offering. But it was definitely different. I know people are going to miss it, and for those who did miss the announcement, I don't have a closing date for the zone, but you cannot log in any longer. So, that's all I have. I wanted to do a short segment on it for the podcast so that people know what's happening. I'm Jared Reimer. This is Podcast 273. Have you heard the This is Better Than That debate? I'm sure you have through the many years Window Eyes versus Jaws, iOS versus Android, NVDA versus Jaws, <clears throat> NVDA versus Window Eyes. We all heard it, right? Well, one Saturday morning, Armando and I were talking. Unannounced to me, he started recording. We picked up Steam and started talking about why him and I chose our phone of choice. Now, back when I needed to make a decision, I talked about this earlier, I had my reasons why I chose iOS. But I'm not against trying Android again if the time dictates for me to look at other options either upgrade my phone or go ahead and make sure that I try something else like an Android phone there are still issues in the Android world I'm not saying here and I'm not saying in that podcast that Android is better I'm not saying iOS is even better because we even have seen iOS apps that have been well not so nice to phones we're going to talk about all of that and much more as Armando and I take you iOS versus Android coming up next on Tech 273 This is Armando. 
coming to you from Northern California. We're going to talk about a controversial topic that's never going to die. Never-ending fanfare, ongoing something versus something, if you must. With me on Skype, I have Mr. Reimer. And the topic that I want to entertain with you, Jared, is one that you know very well, that I know very well, that, that we always hear all the time. Android versus iPhone. Yes. Back in the days, the early days of Android, we can both argue and say that Android was not accessible to any person who had a visual impairment. Now, mind you, that's not to say that with various modifications, installing third-party apps that sometimes did or sometimes didn't work would make the phone usable. I started using Android at the age of 31, and it was back in 2012 when the iPhone 3GS 4, 4S was still a thing back in the days where people kept saying, go for iPhone, go for iPhone because Android is inaccessible and blah, blah, blah. But I'm the kind of person that I, I like to experiment. So I started with Android 2.3, which I believe was gingerbread. Back then, I would have believed everybody that Android was just not a thing. You had to have site assistance to install apps in order to make the phone work such as TalkBack, since it was not included with Google around that time frame. You had to have cited assistance to help you install third-party apps such as i3 Shell, which essentially provided you an interface to the home screen layout, amongst other accessibility features. Or, if you had the money, you had to buy something like mobile accessibility. Do you remember that, Jared, mobile accessibility? Yes, I, yes, I do. Now, when I had mine before, I had to choose iOS, the flip phones. It was mobile speak. Or talks. Tell you what, it was interesting. And that could be a debate too, which was better. I guess we could tie it into this, but anyways. They both had their differences. I, I only used one. I didn't use the other. I've used both, and you are right in that aspect. They each had their differences. The interface was somewhat different because the only advantage that MobileSpeak had versus Talks is that it, it supported more phones than just your Nokia phones. Yeah. It supported your Samsung touchscreens. It supported your HTC touchscreens and some of the newer Nokias that had the touchscreen. You know, I remember using MobileSpeak back in 2011, a demo of it on a Nokia Lumia phones from T-Mobile. But it wasn't the same experience as you would get when you used an Android and or iOS touchscreen layout. Right. Um, I don't know if you've used touchscreen before, Jared, but MobileSpeak, for instance... You had to guess which square you were in in order to activate certain features. They had their touchscreen laid out in quadrants, if you must. Yeah, I don't think I've ever used those. Not like that, anyway. It was such a weird layout that you really had to aim. You had to have, I guess, precise aiming just to activate a certain feature that you need. Then that's when I decided to go and get one of them Samsung Jack phones that ran mobile speak. And that was a QWERTY keyboard style. But then when I was making the decision, an important decision that is, and Jared can kind of elaborate on his experience. But when I was making the important decision to go whether I wanted I wanted iOS or Android, I wanted to choose not go based off of people's feedback, which is appreciative. Don't get me wrong. But ultimately, the choice is yours. I played with my sister's T-Mobile Sidekick phone, which was basically a PDA-style like tablet, kind of like them Pantech Duos and all them other PDAs that were popular back in those days. I don't know if you've messed with those, Jared. I have not. I've heard of them. We go back to having that sighted assistance to help you install TalkBack because it, was, it wasn't even a thing. Google didn't even include it as part of their package. You either had to install TalkBack, Spiel, or other supported screen readers that were available via third-party sources. Companies like AT&T, Sprint offered a mobile speak at a discount. So you had to have a company like Sprint or AT&T install mobile accessibility in order to at least get your phone started. And you would hope that it would work because mobile accessibility was very limited. It didn't give you the full experience 
that one would use nowadays to the phone. And then you have to install, as I said, third-party apps just to have a, a simple layout, an accessible phone dialer. It was just a nightmare. As a result, that's why people said that Android phones were not accessible at the time. Having said that though, I got to experience it for two and a half days. I gave it a fair shot and I said this was not for me so I went back to the keyboard style phones. Well then the iPhone came about back in September of 2012, at least my first iPhone. And for a while I was in the same mind frame as everybody, each and every one of you listeners who are visually impaired, blind or visually impaired said, well Android sucks. Until in 2015 when I purchased a Motorola Droid Turbo from Verizon for my mom for Christmas. And I really played with it for like a day and a half. She was able to turn on TalkBack and then we were able to play with it and it was actually a lot faster. But having said that, I'll let Jared give his experience. I needed to make a decision in 2014 because my flip phone was falling apart. I was playing with my dad's Android phone. He turned on the accessibility. I'm like, okay, how do I type? And so I figured out how to type. It was similar to, this was 2014. It was similar to anything else. Like, okay, I can do this. But wait, this thing's not working right. So he changed the keyboard. Okay, that's better. I can type. I went through his whole phone. I don't know what kind of phone it was, but I went through all the pages. No phone dialer. You ought to be kidding me, right? I got it to call me at home because I'm in the contact list. No way to dial without. I don't want to put all of these numbers in my phone that I dial. I call into the phone lines. Yeah, I put my telespace in my cell phone because I'd call it on a regular basis. But some of the other lines, I never did. Even though I call two new ones, I don't put those numbers in my phone. But back then, it was like, okay, I put my telespace in because I can. It didn't matter. And I only knew one person who would be able to support me on android now you tell me what i want what i should be choosing if i only know one person on android yeah kind of the same idea that's what happened with me too i just didn't cover that because back then it was the site of people who used a lot of the android and a bunch of the people that i hung around with at the uh, training center where i was the majority of them should i say used nothing but iphone so eventually it rubbed off that oh you have to get an iphone android sucks no 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 no. i believe in making the wise choice like jared just reiterated he played with his dad phone explored it and at the time android wasn't for him because of one simple reason he couldn't make a phone call android wasn't for me because i'm a techie and i like to be able to install apps independently and not have to rely on sighted counterparts to do such tasks I'm able to do. I didn't play with any apps. I didn't. I mean, I was trying to figure out the basics. And I bet that was a nightmare, wasn't it? Yeah. It's like, okay, double tap to open stuff. Okay, that's that's all right. I mean, it was similar to my iPod. So I got a lot of that to work. Okay, I opened the phone, you know, the, the contacts. It was like, no way to dial a phone number. Um, no. And back then, I don't think Google Voice Assistant was available, correct? I don't remember. I don't think it was. Again, I didn't look at any of the apps. I wasn't interested in the apps. Really, when I got my iPhone, I wasn't really interested in the apps. And then it's like, you know, I'll check out this Dice World game. I would play it, and it's like, okay, this is fun. And then now, you know, it's like, I got into a few apps because I needed them. But now I've got a whole bunch of them that I use for various things. I never forced myself into them. thing that I, I like about iOS is, like, Herbie at one point said... You know, I don't know. Ask Applevis. So I, I jumped on Applevis. 
asked them whatever it was. I got an answer within a few hours. Yeah, Apple Wish is a very strong community support system, especially when it comes to not just iOS. It expands further than just iOS. Heck, we're talking Mac, Apple TVs, anything that has to do with Apple products. After all, they call it Apple Vis for a reason, right? Apple Visually Impaired. Yeah. And it's AppleVis, A-P-P-L-E-V-I-S dot com. For more information, you want to check out resources and anything else that may pique your perusal enjoyment. And with Android, back in the days, there wasn't a community support-driven site. Yeah, and like I said, I knew some. I know somebody. I actually helped him get into computers. You know, he was asking me and a bunch of other people, you know, for assistance when he finally got a computer, and we all gave him his assistance. And I knew he wasn't reliable, if you must. So that was another reason why I didn't choose Android. Yeah. So fast forward to 2018, just to kind of jump ship, a lot of things have changed with both environments, with Apple, iOS, and Android's operating system. Mind you that Android's open source, so a lot of people can write apps versus Apple. They have a tight niche system that one must go through in order to even have an app hit their app store. Yeah. Having said that, from a security aspect, people can arguably say that Android is a security risk due to it being open sourced. But yet, hackers and other curious people, per se, find ways to attack the iOS platform. Wouldn't you say so? Well, the App Store has not been a prime target for hackers. Yes, the Apple App Store did have some malicious content that got through. Which happens. Eventually, things slip through the cracks. Yes, and that's the point I want to make. I want to make... The point that things did get through and have. Also, these apps were written in such a way where they did not do their damage unless a certain condition was made. So the App Store, when Apple reviewed the app, it was a normal looking app. Right, because of course they're very stringent on their uh, process to submit apps. Yes, but when people in this one country downloaded the app... It caused havoc. We have to remember that Android's full of it. From what I've seen, and I see it on a daily basis, yes, they've got a bouncer that bounces apps out, but there's no way that it can catch every single one or a majority of them. And yes, there are some that are going to be on both platforms that are going to slip through these these, uh, vetting processes. And And a lot of the apps can do some pretty serious damage. From placing outbound calls and malicious texts to so far as wiping your phone if if they want to. What I will say is this. Google updates their platform on a regular basis with security fixes and things that is brought to their attention. What I don't like and one of the other reasons why I did not choose Android besides the thing that I talked about earlier was the fact that even though Google put out an update, you may or may not get it. As Security Now has stated for many years now, we're pretty much running computers our whole life. Oh, yes. I'm on desktop at the moment. My phone over here, which is playing Nature Space in the background, is a computer. And it has to be updated on a regular basis with new fixes. Hey, we can even go as far as automotives nowadays. They're all computer-based. Yeah, and that's a different podcast altogether because I thought I read something. Trend, I think you'll find it in my timeline, Mondo. Trend Micro 
put a thing out about cars. Needless to say, nowadays everything that you do, whether it's iOS, whether it's Android, Windows even, for crying out loud, Mac. Windows has been, been a problem since the beginning, though. Anything nowadays is a security risk. It's just a matter of how do you protect yourself and prevent such catastrophe and disaster happening to your devices, such as your phone and or computers. Protect oh, and yourself. question for you Mac users. It's a very serious one. How many of you Mac users have not bothered to keep up with what's happening because you still think that you are not vulnerable to threats? That may have been a thing of the past, but now you're pretty much vulnerable no matter what. Because within the last year alone, Mac has started to get the attention of the hackers. While they haven't done a lot of damage yet, it's coming. And you can search for Mac vulnerabilities. You'll find a lot of stuff on that. In closing, just to kind of wrap things up, no system is better. Android versus iPhone. I think it's just a matter of preference. It's a matter of what you can afford. Since on the upside, Android does offer from your expensive phones to low budget phones, whereas Apple, they're pretty much high priced, I guess is the proper word to say it. Also, again, you know, it's one of those things where you really need to take a time, like Jared and or myself have done, borrow somebody's phone if they have an extra phone laying around and see if Android's for you before you make the de determination as to whether or not, and I quote, Android sucks, iOS is better, or vice versa. Keep in mind that no matter what you use, you are going to run into security vulnerabilities as well as the use of common sense. And Jared can correct me or not about this. What's that, Mondo? Such as, if you don't know what a certain app is, don't download it. Keeping your apps up to date since Google and Apple update their stuff on a regular basis. Viruses and attacks can be spread in many ways, from opening a text message that you don't know who it's from, to opening an email, to visiting sites that somehow, you know, a hacker would go in and redirect. Even though you, sometimes you get an email that says, oh, it's a legit site, but yet when you open that site, and they say enter your credit card information when you know certain sites like Apple or other vendors don't ask you for that on the first page. Right. And maybe I'm missing some more so Jared can add on to that. You've got the basic idea. And of course, if you're looking for an app, look at what it says it's it's going to do. Like, for example, Dice World. It's a dice game. We know that. But if you didn't know that, you'd be reading the description, right? Yes, it's always important to read app descriptions from its developers. And if the app said you can watch videos and... Place outbound would, phone calls or send emails the easy way. Yeah, you were told it was a game, uh, um, a... Multiplayer a game. game. Uh -huh. And then you downloaded it and it actually wiped your phone. Yeah, so I think reading the app descriptions is very important, as Jared pointed out, which I'm glad I brought him on board because he knows more of the security aspect. I mean, I hear it, but oh, I think this is great common sense because this could happen not only on Android, but also on iOS, even though Apple may have a stricter environment to submit apps. But as we pointed out earlier, from time to time, things slip through the cracks. What we're trying to basically say is that not one size fits all. It's just a matter of what do you prefer. I would like to thank Jared for taking the time to talk with me about this. You're quite welcome. And Jared, how can they get a hold of you? If they have any more questions in regards to security and other things that we may not have touched on. You can email me through my podcast email, which is tech, T-E-C-H, at M-E-N-V-I dot org. And my contact information is at M-A-L-D-O-N-A-D-O-0767 on Twitter. Email address is armando.maldonado 
ado0767 at gmail.com. Jared, thank you so much for taking the time, and hopefully we'll see you. quite welcome. I'm very happy to, to be here, and this podcast will be mass distributed between networks. I hope that people will take the time to at least check it out and make an informed decision. Don't rush into it. I didn't rush into it. I did need to make a decision because I needed to have something, but I didn't feel I rushed into it. I thought about it. I sort of already had my mind made up, but I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try it anyhow because who knows? Maybe I'll change my mind, but I didn't change my mind. And I felt the same way too. I mean, it's fair to say that. I like to use both platforms just to be versed for one reason or another, but that's just my personal preference. Maybe that's not for you. Maybe that's not for Jared. Maybe that's not for any of you listeners out there. Thank you all. This concludes the Android versus iPhone debate and securities from both platforms. Until next time, folks, take care. God bless. So long. All right, folks, that is going to complete the podcast today. I hope that you all will enjoy the program. And feel free to email or iMessage, T-E-C-H at M-E-N-V-I dot O-R-G or you may text or WhatsApp 804-442-6975 or call 818-921-4976. Until next podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. And remember to check out our new talk show as part of 986 The Mix, Talking Tech and Security, a two-hour radio show which is hosted through 986 the mix so that you have other things to talk about in between these podcasts thanks for listening